Uh, turning your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 1, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we're uh, starting a new series this morning. We've uh, finished First Peter and are now beginning uh, the book of Exodus, which anytime you start a new a new book, a new series, you um, it always requires a little bit of of uh, of intro, maybe to the book as much as anything else, and or, or an intro into why. Um, but uh, the other day, I um, was asked by a friend of mine. Uh, he's he's a Baptist, and was asking what I'm preaching on these days. And I told him I was getting ready to start a series in Exodus. And um, and I could see the wheels turning. Um, the, his response was, and, I, and, and two phrases, the first one I can't ever quite remember because the second one stood out to me so much that, that I've lost the first one. The first one was something to the effect of, um, you know, well, there's some good teaching there or, or there's some good stuff there or there's, or it's not, it's not all really teaching. It was something to that effect followed by, but there's some really good history. And I, I'm pretty sure that what he really wanted to say was, um, why? Why, why are you, like, why would you preach Exodus? I really think that was the question that was actually back there that didn't actually come out of his mouth. You could kind of see um, that he was maybe caught off guard that that we would actually spend who knows how many of the next weeks and months in the book of Exodus. Uh, the reality is, I mean, I can think of at least three reasons without even working hard. One of them is because Second Timothy 3 tells us that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. It's actually God's Word, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And, and even though, yes, Second Timothy is probably Paul's last letter, um, Paul didn't have the New Testament yet. He was talking about Exodus. He was talking about the Old Testament. Um, the second reason I can come up with is because he's right. My friend's right. It actually is history. It's, it's historical and it's accurate in all that it intends to portray and teach us. Uh, um, the catch is, and, and I think this is where my friend and I are probably a little different. The catch is, it isn't merely historical. Yes, it's history. Yes, it's historical, but it isn't mere history. It's not written the way we might expect someone to write a history book. How do you know? Well, you know in Exodus 1. There are at least two ways I can think of in our passage this morning how we already from the very beginning know that there's something more to it than just communicating history. Because we find in verse uh, 8, for example, there's a new king, there's a new pharaoh, and you don't get his name. It could be, or it might be, the truth is, we don't know. That tells me, at the very least, that Moses wasn't trying to communicate merely history. Now, I use that word on purpose. Because Exodus is historical. It is history. It is true. It is real. 
But it's, there's more to it than that. There's a theological angle to it that is more than just the history of it because we don't even know who that, that Pharaoh is. For that matter, in verses 2 through 4, the, the order of the, 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 well, 11 sons of Jacob, that's not their birth order. That's the order of, it's, the order is related to their mothers, not to them. Leah, Rachel, then the maidservants. Is it history? Yes, it is. Is it merely history? No, it's not. There's a third reason I can think of for preaching Exodus, and it's this. And it kind of connected to that. Um, and this, this may also have been part of what my friend was thinking. Is this Israel's history? Yes. Is it your history? Yes. Because we read in Romans 9 that we are, the church is the true Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church fulfills Israel. And you see this beginning to unfold in Exodus because what started as a couple in the garden, the church, became a family in Abraham, became a nation in families in Abraham's descendants, and becomes international in Christ. We are the true Israel. Those who, who live by faith, who are sons of Abraham by faith. And so you can do Ancestry.com, you can do 23andMe or whatever that thing is where you spit in a cup and send them your stuff and they tell you all about you, Right? This is the part they can't tell you. You have a, an ancestry that, that spitting in a cup won't communicate to the people around you. Because this is our history. So with that, let's read Exodus chapter 1. Let me ask um, that you, if you're able, please stand as we read God's word together. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But, they, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, 
you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would use this, your word, to teach us, to instruct us, to conform us into the image of Christ. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. See, the reality is that uh, as we come to Exodus, we find God's people in danger. We find God's people uh, threatened. And uh, whenever we as God's people are in danger, we would do well to remember the certainty of God's promises. And that's exactly where these Israelites are at the beginning of chapter 1. We need to remember God's promises. And I want you to notice something. There's actually a word missing in verse 1. In virtually every English translation, there's a word missing. It's not a it's not a big word. It's a regular word. It's a, um, a schoolhouse rock conjunction junction word. Uh, it's the word and. See, the, the Hebrew version of Exodus begins with an and. and. And you know what and does, right? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses to steal from Schoolhouse Rock. It takes two thoughts and links them together. Well, when you're starting the book of Exodus and you read an and, you've got to figure out where does that go? Where does the and look? Well, it looks back to Genesis. And, and Moses really sees himself as writing a continuation of the story he's been writing already. This isn't a new story. This isn't a new event. This isn't a new account. This isn't something completely different. The point is that, that he's actually connecting what we read in Exodus to what has gone before in the book of Genesis. It helps us to know and to understand uh, Genesis before we get too deep into Exodus. And not only that, but we actually find a reference in verse 7 to creation. Not only is there an and that that makes you think, well, hold on, I've got to have a phrase before that. Well, the phrase is Genesis 1 through 50. And these are the names. But then in verse 7, we actually find Genesis 1 showing back up again. Do you remember the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden? Genesis 1.28. 
Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God had created the heavens and the earth. He'd created man. He'd created Adam and Eve to be His image bearers. And their instruction was to fill the earth with more image bearers. Everywhere that the king would rule, everywhere that that God would sovereignly rule over the earth was supposed to be filled with those who bear His image. Of course, sin marred that image. Sin also marred the desire to fulfill that command, if you remember the Tower of Babel. But the point is, here, Israel, we're seeing that command in Genesis 1.28 being carried out by the Israelites. We're seeing them blessed with descendants like the sand on the shore, like the stars in the sky. Despite the fact that they are in Egypt. And for that matter, they increased greatly. The language literally is swarmed. They swarmed. It's a great image of just the sheer size population of Israel at this point. And so we find these Israelites in what looks like a pretty bleak situation. It, at, at the beginning in verses 2 through 4, you read 12 names. 11 of them go down with Jacob. 11 sons go down with Jacob into Egypt. The 13th name, Joseph, he's already there. And yet, even as that generation dies off, even as Joseph and, and that generation fades into memory, God is being faithful to accomplish His purposes and to preserve and increase and grow His people. Do you remember why they're in Egypt to begin with? Do you remember why Israel is there? There are multiple answers to this question. Right? You, you, could, you could answer this question at least two ways, and depending on how you wanted to, to split those up, you could make it three or four ways. But, but there's at least there are a couple of reasons why the Israelites are in Egypt. For the first, just look, I don't know how your Bible's laid out, back up one page. And at the end of Genesis 50... We're reminded of one of the reasons why the Israelites are in Egypt. And we read it in verse 20 of chapter 50. Joseph is speaking to his family, to his brothers. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that the people should be kept alive as they are today. What is it? Well, it is when his brothers back in chapter 37 decided, you know what? We're not real keen on Joseph being the favorite son of our dad. And it's not fair. And he's got this cool coat. So what we're going to do is we're going to take his coat and cover it in blood. 
and sell him as a slave and let him disappear and we'll pretend that he's been killed by a wild animal. They wanted Joseph gone. They wanted Joseph dead. But God in His providence, God in His grace to both Joseph and to the brothers wouldn't let them do that. They instead sold him as a slave And you know the rest of the story. If you don't know the rest of the story, read Genesis 37 to 50 this afternoon. And you can even go back and listen to old sermons from Genesis from whatever year that was. We preach through Genesis. So one of the reasons they're in Egypt is because Joseph's brothers hated him and they wanted him gone. Which, of course, even as we just sang, that was evidence of God's providence. Because here in Genesis 50, Joseph says, what you meant was evil. You meant my death. You meant getting rid of me. However, God superintended those things. And he used your evil wickedness to preserve us. Because there were seven years of of great blessing followed by seven years of famine and Joseph was there the the vice pharaoh secretary of state uh, in Egypt to preserve God's people but there's actually another answer to that question that backs up further still turn with me to Genesis chapter 15 and let me just show you real quick That none of this should have been a surprise to anyone. None of what we read in the first several chapters of Exodus. Israel spending 400 years as slaves in Egypt comes as a shock to nobody. Because God actually told Abraham that in Genesis 15. God called Abraham in Genesis 12 um, and and enters into this uh, covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And then we read in verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. We already know the story of Exodus Before we get to Joseph, before we get to Jacob, we already know what's coming in Exodus. This was part of God's plan all along. This was part of God's design all along. But there's more. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 16 in Genesis 15. Part of the reason that God didn't take Abraham straight to the promised land and give it to him right away is because, verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, they the Israelites, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's patience, even for wicked Canaanites, it's not yet time for me to pass judgment on them. So instead, Abraham, I'm going to have you, your descendants, my chosen people, 
spend 400 years as slaves in a foreign land because I'm not, it's not time for me to deal with the wickedness of the Canaanites. God's patience, God's providence, all at work in taking the Israelites to Egypt. And already there's an application for, there, for us there, right? How often do we evaluate God's care for us by our eyeballs? How often do we use our, our, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our bank accounts, our cars working, our homes, our children, and let those things be determining factors of whether God cares for me or not. You see, the reality is, God's people should be going, let me get this straight. God, you made a covenant with Abraham, my grandfather. No, my great-grandfather. And, and, and you actually cut those animals and you pass between the animals and, and you're saying, look, if, if what I'm promising to you doesn't happen, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. And Abraham didn't pass through those pieces. And so God, um, where are you? We want Chick-fil-A drive through when it comes to God fulfilling his promises, right? We don't want sit down dinner with a waiter who for you know understaffed restaurant with a waiter who forgets you're there but that's what it seems like they've gotten they didn't get chick-fil-a drive through deliverance they didn't get chick-fil-a drive through sanctification they don't get chick-fil-a drive through certainty of god's promises instead what they get is generation after generation, after generation, after... We could keep going. I won't. Before God finally fulfills this promise to Abraham. You know, time is no obstacle to God's promises. Time is no obstacle to the certainty of God's promises. Speaking of obstacles, that's actually the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is all about obstacles to God fulfilling His promise. Because we find in verse 8, there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new pharaoh. There's a new king. And it's someone who doesn't know Joseph. Now, the reality is, maybe he had no idea who Joseph was. You know, maybe he didn't, didn't sit around in the evening and read the, the old stories of his predecessors. Maybe he wasn't reading the annals of the pharaohs of Egypt for, you know, light reading at night when, you know, he needed something to do. Maybe he had no idea who Joseph even was. In all likelihood... <clears throat> Moses means that this Pharaoh didn't care. Anytime there's a, a regime change, policy changes. That, that's not really a shock. We even see that 
in presidential elections. You bounce from a D to an R and an R to a D and policy changes. This is a pharaoh who decided, I don't really, I may know the stories of Joseph. I don't really care. Those stories aren't going to affect me. <clears throat> Those stories aren't going to affect how I rule and reign here in Egypt. This Pharaoh, though, does care very deeply about the fact that Joseph's people are growing like crazy. They're swarming. They're, his, his greatest fear, in fact, he, you get the sense that he sort of he calls his advisors together and says, look, um, those people, you know, those, those Israelite people, there's way too many of them. And, and we could be in serious trouble because if they decided to rise up against us, there's a lot of them. And the more there are, the stronger they get. Or for that matter, if, if some other country wanted to invade us, then I'm pretty sure that those Israelites would join them and fight against us. So we've got to do something about this. We have to... We've got to put a stop to this. We can't let them be fruitful and increase greatly and multiply and grow exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's what you do when you when when the locals don't want the foreigners, the immigrants to to get too big or to you. You sort of tell all the locals, like, we got to be careful because these People, these foreigners could become a threat to us. And so naturally, the Egyptians fell right in line. Naturally, they were glad to get on board with that plan. It was their own self-preservation of sorts. You know, those, those times we were watching a show or a movie or something the other day, which is probably why I kind of wrote this little illustration in here, and now I have no idea what it was. But you know those times like in movies, um, I wish it were only in movies, right? I wish we didn't actually do this. But the reason this resonates in movies is because we actually do this. When we blame our evil deeds on other people, you made me. Like, I had to do this. Because of what you were doing. Like, I was given no choice. I had no choice but to kill so-and-so or to get rid of so-and-so or whatever that was in the movie we were watching. Whatever movie it was. You gave me no choice but to be mean to you. You gave me... That's the way Pharaoh speaks. I had to. I've been left no choice. And Israel, it's your fault that I'm going to have to deal shrewdly with you politically. I've got to, I've got to impose these, these threats and dangers and, and, and persecutions and oppressions on you. I've got to set these difficult, wicked taskmasters over you. I've got to make it burdensome for you to continue Working And in verses 13 and 14, um, most of our English versions, we read the word work a bunch. 
Um, and then there's the word service and made their lives bitter with hard service. They're all the same word in Hebrew. And so it, 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 you should hear to serve with hard service and in their service as slaves. You know, it, it repeats itself over and over again to make us feel the, the weight and the difficulty of the burden placed on God's people. That didn't work. I mean, we, we even read that despite all of that, God's people still continued to grow. The, the very thing that, that the king wanted not to happen is happening right under his very... The very thing he's trying to prevent is actually happening faster and better because of the oppression that he's been putting on these people. Israel, verse 12, continued, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. You know, it's funny, and this really sort of an aside comment more than anything else. We as Americans, we, we look for the government to sanction the Christian church and to protect it and to take care of it. As though we needed the government to protect the church. And yet we read statistics about people growing and leaving the church. Go to countries where the government is dead set on the church's destruction. This is what they find. God's people multiplying greatly. Increasing in number. And growing exceedingly strong. The reality is persecution grows the church persecution persecution strengthens her people of course when his plan to oppress uh, the Israelites didn't work he had to find another way uh, to oppose God and his people and so he calls these Hebrew midwives um, and says look here's the deal um, we're going to go the partial birth abortion route and and if you have if it's a if it's a male you kill it get rid of it uh, if it's a female then the females can live and you notice that the midwives um, the the echo of Peter and John in Acts runs through your head uh, whether it is right we we have to obey God rather than men. I won't obey your commands because God has told us not to kill. And so we're going to, you say, wait, there's no Exodus 20, but we've seen it already. That's why you need the and at the beginning of Exodus, because don't murder in Genesis in Exodus 20 is not new. We see it in Genesis also. We're going to obey God. We're not going to obey man, even if. You are the king of Egypt, even if you are the ruler. They honored God. They wouldn't obey the Pharaoh. And for that, notice God blessed them with families. Even the midwives end up having their own families because they're faithful to God and to his promises. 
God dealt graciously with these women, lovingly, kindly, mercifully, to these midwives because they honored God above the Pharaoh. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait, hold on. We just finished 1 Peter. And we heard a lot in 1 Peter about persecution. And now you're telling us in Exodus that if we honor God, so in 1 Peter, if we honor God, we should expect to be persecuted. In Exodus, if we honor God, we should expect to be blessed. The answer, yes. Might we face persecution on the account of Christ? Absolutely. Will God bless us for honoring Christ, for serving Him rather than, than and following His commands rather than following the commands? Yes. Do those things contradict each other? No. Not even a little bit. And these are midwives. How often in God's word do protection and deliverance come from the least likely places? A couple of women doing their job to the honor and glory of God their king, even if it means disobeying commands of their civil authorities, they will honor and serve God. And when that plan to oppose God and his people didn't work, he issued a decree, go find all the boys, throw them in the river. Let's just kill them all. Let's solve the problem here and now. Do you see what's unfolding right before your eyes? It's Genesis 3.15. You see, you need the connect. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. You need the connection between Exodus and Genesis. Because what we find in Exodus 1 is an unfolding of the fulfillment of Genesis 3 verse 15. In Genesis 3 we have the fall um, Adam and Eve uh, introduce sin, disobedience, cosmic treason into creation. And in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Why does Pharaoh want to get rid of boys and not seem to care about girls? Because of the masculine pronoun in Genesis 3. The seed of the serpent is trying to destroy the seed of the woman in Exodus 1. The seed of the serpent, the offspring of those who would oppose God and His people, is trying to destroy God and His people in Exodus 1. He's trying to make sure that the He of Genesis... Now, He may not know this, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not giving Pharaoh that much credit. I'm simply stating that in God's providence, 
which sometimes is dark, as we sang just a minute ago. He's trying to make sure that that he never comes about, never is born, never comes to deliver his people. Let me make several applications from this passage. First is this. God's timing is not our timing. We want drive-through sanctification. We want drive-through church growth. This is well over 400 years. It's, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his 12 sons. They're the ones who go down to Egypt. There's 400 years there before they come out. That is not how you and I would design deliverance. God's timing is not our timing. Just because you don't see it happen in your lifetime doesn't mean God's not doing it, whatever it might be. A second application sort of connected to that. Christ has promised that he would build his church and that the very gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. Why do we wring our hands when someone we think who's going to destroy the church gets elected to office, gets put in power, gets some office or role or position that we think they now have the right to threaten the church? Why do we wring our hands in terror and fear? Because the certainty of God's promises say no political authority can put an end to Christ's kingdom. This Pharaoh, and we don't even know who he is. We don't even know his name. He doesn't even have the privilege of us being able to call him by name. And yet the church, all around the globe, What started as 70 becomes thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands and millions in Christ. If Christ has said he'd build his church. Yeah, the clock may say it's slow. The calendar may say it's slow. But it is guaranteed nonetheless. A third application. Whatever opposition the enemy may throw at God and his people is nothing compared to the power and authority of the king of heaven and earth. Be encouraged with that, even if that's all it is. Whatever power, whatever opposition that, that Satan and his minions can throw at God and his people is absolutely nothing in light of the power and authority of the king of heaven and earth. A fourth uh, application, the apparent absence of God doesn't make him absent. Do me a favor, just really quickly. Kind of quickly scan your way through Exodus 1 and tell me where God is <clears throat> because the reality is he's hardly there. The midwives obeyed God, Moses tells us, and God blesses the midwives, God tells us. But other than that, he's hardly there. 
Put yourselves in the Israelite shoes for a second. Generation come, generations go. Generations come, generations go. You now are being oppressed in your building of the pyramids. The Pharaoh is making it different. You are thinking the whole time, God, where are you? Are you not paying? How often do you think to yourself, God doesn't even notice me? I'm not even sure sometimes God's aware of the struggle and the conflict that I'm going through. There are those times when you feel like God is absent. This passage reminds us the apparent absence of God is not the absence of God. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. We sang just a minute ago. Sometimes it looks like God isn't there. Sometimes the the oppression of the world around us makes us think that God has forgotten. And the reality is, God couldn't be more aware than He is. He's accomplishing His purposes. A fourth, fifth application. At the end of Exodus 1, we're looking for somebody to, to deliver God's people. We finish the chapter wondering who's going to... Free- now, we know the story. We know the... But pretend you're just getting there. At the end of chapter 1, you're thinking, who's going to free God's people from this? Because this looks really bad. We're looking for a deliverer. We're looking for someone to come and save God's people. And, and this points us to Christ. Even as we read from Romans 6 just a few minutes ago, Christ has delivered His people from bondage, from slavery to sin and set us free to Christ, set us free to righteousness. If you're not trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation. This passage says, if you're looking for that deliverer, deliverer, there He is. Christ sets His people free from slavery to sin. He and He alone can bring us deliverance. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of uh, our need for freedom, our need for deliverance from our own bondage, from, from slavery to sin and to the world, the flesh and the devil. And we pray that you would draw us once again to Christ in whom we find our deliverer. Uh, remind us as believers of the freedom granted to us in him. And we pray that this passage, that this book would draw us to remind us of Christ's rule over all the earth. That even when it looks like the powers of darkness hold all the cards, that Christ will reign wherever the sun shines its light. 
Would you give us glimpses of that even today? We pray all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.